Amen. If you would remain standing and open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. The end of chapter 2 will pick up in 46 and we'll read through about halfway in chapter 3. We remember just to pick up a little bit from last week because we're kind of jumping in that there was a problem. Nebuchadnezzar, the powerful king of Babylon, had, despite all his power, had bad dreams and he couldn't sleep. And this made him grumpy and angry so much that he threatened all his wise men that if they couldn't tell him the dream and its interpretation, he was going to kill them all. So Daniel and his friends, these young university student graduates, they prayed and Daniel gets the dream and he interprets it and this is kind of the follow-up of that and then into the next part of the narrative. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to David, commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. And the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Then chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that the king, that king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and counselors, and treasurers, and justices, and magistrates, all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the fiery furnace. And there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, 
These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was furious, rage with rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready to hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Lord, thank you for this text. Thank you for your word that sits, Lord, above us, over us. May it do its work in us this morning. May we be shaped as we read Daniel and we read these words and, Lord, apply them to our hearts. Show us Christ this morning. We pray in his name. Amen. may be seated. I wonder as we're going through Daniel, how you see yourself in it. Some of you may have never read Daniel before or never thought about it, but I suspect if you're like me, you grew up and like seeing these things on like a flannel graph or hearing these stories in Sunday school. I just wonder where you see yourself. I mean, it always captured my imagination, the fiery furnace, and we'll have to look at that closer next week, but also later in chapter 6, a den of lions. And especially in early parts of Daniel, these were young guys, like when they were brought into the king's court, maybe 15, with three years of training. So coming out, you're looking at, these could be like 18, 19-year-old kids. I mean, it's meant to capture our attention. It's meant to, narrative and scripture, is, it, it, it does great things. We are meant to read these stories and say, where would we fit? Who am I in the story? And often as a, maybe as a kid or uh, even watching Veggie Tales, you're, the, you're kind of the hero, right? You're the... Um, <laughs> You're the one who resists. You always get it right. But I think we're being invited uh, into some very complex layers of life as Christians. Like if, if we overlook the reality that these guys are in exile, that their life is far from perfect, that they have... Um, been taken from everything and everyone they knew, and all they have now is each other, it, it, it begins to change the way you read the narrative. 
when we read Daniel, are we, um, are we like, oh yeah, I'm Daniel? Or I'm one of his friends? You know, I would definitely be the one to, to, to the most powerful person in the land be like, mm-mm, nope. I mean, we have to begin to think realistically. That's what I, I want us to do about God's Word and about who we are. So God has done this um, great thing. He has given Daniel this, this dream. And by doing that, Daniel said, hey, don't, don't kill all the people of Babylon, all the, all the wise men. Basically, don't kill all my university um, peers. Let them live. He stopped the execution order. He tells Nebuchadnezzar exactly what he saw. He gives him this whole dream of this um, massive kingdom with the head of gold. You remember chest and arms of silver, kind of um, midsection of bronze and, and legs of iron, and then iron feet of iron mixed with clay. It's all, it's all there. He gives him this vision. Then he has this stone right, that's cut from a mountain not using human hands, that's flung at the statue, hits the feet of the statue, the statue topples, the stone grows into a mountain that covers the earth. That was the sum of last week. Christ is coming. A stone cut from no human hands. This is a work of God and Him alone. It's going to look tiny, it's going to look small and insignificant, but it's going to strike and, and those kingdoms are falling and going to go away. They're going to, they're going to literally blow away in the wind. That was last week. Truly, he says, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Your God you have been able. Daniel, you are worthy of praise for this. Daniel, you have done this great thing. I think Nebuchadnezzar is a lot like us. When something great happens to us in our lives, and maybe it's something even small, so I don't want you to think like super big, but maybe it's something small that you prayed for that when it happens, we immediately turn to the human cause. And we immediately think, oh, it's because this person or that person has done this thing for me. And we forget that we prayed and that God is answering our prayer. I think Nebuchadnezzar is right there. Like he has this terrible issue and Daniel says God has given it. And Nebuchadnezzar is all too willing to say, man, Daniel, you're great bows down to him and burns incense to Daniel. I think that's us. I think we're quick to do the exact same thing. How many times when we pray for something in our lives and, and the Lord through a, a human agent or in some way he, he, he answers and, and grace our prayers and we, we're quick to thank the human agent and forget about our God. I think we do the same thing. As a result of Daniel's revelation and interpretation, he's um, elevated to second command over Babylon. And, um, and then he gets his friends appointed as uh, courtiers in, uh, in Babylon. Today we'll see what these, uh, what these guys face next. And again, 
we have to frame these with our overall message, which is how do we live lives as God's people in exile? I think there are lessons here. One um, is that power is fickle. Two, uh, there are fair weather friends. And third, uh, we'll see a faithful answer. So we're trying to, again, learn these lessons of how we as a church are to process life as exiles in the world, praying for the kingdom of God to come. We, we here have a lesson that we must learn well, and that is that power in this world is utterly fickle. If you don't like the word fickle, choose another changeable, variable, vacillating, fitful, irregular, inconsistent, disloyal, undependable, unstable, unsteady, unfaithful. You pick one that you like. The powers of this world are fickle. So one minute, Nebuchadnezzar is in awe of Daniel and even calls out his God. Yeah, your God is God above all gods and uh, Lord of Lords. And I hear I'll burn incense to you, Daniel, and we'll make a big deal out of you. And then three verses later, he builds this massive idol of gold. King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 1 of 3, chapter 3, made an image of gold whose height was 60... I mean, it's ridiculous. It's utterly ridiculous how big this thing is. 60 cubits high, like 90 feet. I don't know, what is it? 30 feet right here? Three times higher than the ceiling? Nine feet wide? I mean, it's... it's hard to believe what he, and either it's solid gold or maybe covered in gold, we're not told, but he builds a massive idol. Three verses after, he acknowledged to Daniel that your God is great. Your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords. How inconsistent. We just read, again, he's referencing God. One, one and. How consistent, though, with our lives? We have a week where we feel just spiritually great. Man, we're on top of the world. We're really, we're super Christians this week. You know, we went to the retreat. uh, We got with all our friends who are Christians. And we're just on this spiritual high. We, like, we have a buzz. We're so spiritual. We're just buzzing on Jesus. And then, the, and then the next day, we utterly forget him and construct idols that we prefer. I mean, again, when we're asking who we are in this story, um, it would be real easy to say we're the ones resisting. I think we are a lot like Nebuchadnezzar. Like our spiritual lives are, are like we're on top of the world and then boom he's the next thing you know you know three verses later god of gods and lord of lords a a 90 foot tall idol to me it's us it's us this idol that he erects is uh, this golden symbol which by the way he's doing this in utter defiance of the vision that he saw 
right? The vision that he saw is you're the head of gold, right? And then there's going to be one after you that's silver, right? Isn't that what Daniel told him? And then bronze and then, you know, uh, iron. So he then builds an image that's all gold. This is utter defiance of God. This is idolatry of the first order. This is looking at God. Okay, I got the vision, right, that I saw. This is, this is him shaking his fist at God saying, nope, my kingdom is all of gold and it's all me. It's all me. So in his vision that God gave him, the accurate one, he was the head of gold. But here, the idol that he makes is all of him. Listen, again, I think it's utterly a a beautiful thing and a true thing to consider the reality of idolatry of self. So many idols that we think about in our lives are something over there or this, you know, ornament in the rearview mirror or whatever, but it's us. Nebuchadnezzar is on display. I mean, his name gets annoying in these verses that I just read. Seven times in seven verses, Nebuchadnezzar this, Nebuchadnezzar that, Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, then King Nebuchadnezzar sent, King Nebuchadnezzar set up. I could go on. It's, it's annoying. Anytime you have repetition like that, like what we're being invited into is this, the idol is him. Being represented by this ridiculously... Um, crazy image, but it's him. The idol of self. And listen, every single one of us in this room deal with this. We, We would be lying to say we don't. We idolize self. Self-worship is a danger for every single one of us. So in, in all of this, second, it's not just um, idols, but it's all cloaked in religious language. How many times do you hear all this music business? Verses 4 and 5, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. When you hear the sound of the horn, uh, lyre, trigon, harp, and bagpipe, and every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that the king Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. The whole thing is religious. All of it would have been a direct assault on the people of God. We know the first commandment, he shall uh, only serve the true and living God and no other. And the second commandment, you're not going to bow down to, you're not going to worship any carved image of anything. And, and these guys would have known that well, both the positive and negative aspects of those commands. They would have had them embedded into the marrow of their bones So obviously they're looking at this and saying, this is idolatry. We can't bow down to this statue. But again, I don't think uh, our temptation as exiles is to pick a statue here in town and go worship and bow down to it. I don't think that's what you're dealing with today. I don't think after your, you know, Sunday lunch, you're going to be tempted to hop into your car and drive to some massive statue somewhere and, and bow down. But I do think we are all tempted 
by the monument of self. We give our lives to our selves. Sinclair Ferguson says, blasphemy is natural to the human heart. It will therefore manifest itself in our religious activities unless it is deliberately rejected. I think he's exactly right. This rises from the the human heart unless we deliberately push back against it. This is the trajectory of all of our hearts to self-worship. Worship in exile was utterly man-centered. God is not the object. God is not the center of that worship. So that means we have to live defiant lives of worship. Did you ever think waking up on a Sunday and setting your alarm clock and, and coming to worship with the people of God is defiant? You should. It's a defiant act. You should come to worship with the people of God and not neglect gathering together because this is, this is how we push back. This is how we fight. This is just one way, though. I mean, you have to be a Christian, not just on Sundays. But this is one defiant act of the people of God pushing back against the idol of self. It's coming to hear about a God who is above us, who loves us, who sent his son to die for us. Verse 3 tells us that there's a who's who of the Babylonian elite um, coming to this. It's, um, this is for the important people. It's about status, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, counselors, treasurers, justices, the magistrates, and all the officials in the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image. This is a who's who of elite All the music, all the powerful people, all the preferences of those in control, and no reference to the true and living God. Romans 1, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts and impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. This is what worshiping man will do. We exchange the truth about God for a lie in our hearts. Living life in exile means we have to pay attention to the object of our worship. Listen, a huge lesson here is who do you worship? Who is the object of your worship and your affection? If we frame it like this, who, who do you think about when you think about glory? Is it God's glory or yours? We all bow down to something. What do we bow down to? Jesus says that the Father is seeking worshipers who worship in spirit And in truth, there's another reality going on here to point out idolatry. What was the threat of those who don't bow down? I mean, they were just kind of, kind of slapping them on the wrist, right? No, you know, you know, it's about idolatry when the sentence is death. 
Idolatry has been defined as loving anything more than Jesus Christ. When you become so absorbed with the worship of other things, other people, or self, um, anything other than God, it, it totally gets off the rails really quick. And if that thing gets violated by someone else, if, if it gets threatened by someone from the outside, you become unhinged. That's exactly what we see with the king here. He, he's getting unhinged. If you don't do what I want you to do, I'm going to lose it. You're going to die. I'm throwing you in the fiery furnace if you don't bow to this statue. So true of all of us. Again, I know we want to be the good guys in the story. But think about your own heart for just a minute. And be honest. There are things that when somebody comes into your life and push, pushes back on or against, that you get unreasonably unhinged. That is a great place to look for your idols. It's like this. Someone is stepping on your toes. You know, that's the expression we use for it. Well, that, that's, they're probably pushing your buttons because they're, they've identified an idol in your life. Listen, do you let people do that for you? Do you let people into your life? Do, are you known enough by friends or your church family to, to, to let someone meddle with your idols and call them out to you? Look for your places of anger to find your idols. So we've seen this fickle power, but now there's fair weather friends. Um, so Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, I love their uh, Hebrew names, and Azariah have had interactions before with the Chaldeans, and they live their lives side by side. But as, as soon as... Um, so we, we saw this earlier, Azariah, right? grabs Daniel and he goes before the king taking credit for what it's like I have found the guy right he, he stands up to, to take the credit but here um, we see the roles reverse a little bit um, as the people of God living in exile we have to be aware that um, those outside of us are all too quick to use the church the people of God, when it's expedient for their own ends, and utterly cast us away when, um, when we don't fit their uh, desires. This is true. It happens again and again in several spheres of life, but especially in politics, especially in political interests. It's really interesting to me that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego aren't in view up front. They're, they're, not, um, they're not really spoken of much. The only reason they even come up in the narrative is for something they don't do in the worship service. So, so here, think about it. Like verse 8, Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. It, it, it's really interesting. That's an interesting phrase. It, it reads, they ate their pieces. We in the South would say it like this. They chewed them up. Man, did you see that game? They chewed them up. 
That's literally how it reads. So they, the Chaldeans come before the court, before Nebuchadnezzar, and they tore them to shreds with their words. They chew them up. They slandered them to the king, and, and finally they, um, they, they see an opportunity to get rid of these foreigners whose star has been on the rise in politics. They finally have a chance uh, to, to kill these guys. I think there's a, a pow- another powerful lesson here. Not only um, should we view, um, we protect the, the, uh, the, the glory of the Lord as the, the people of God, but people of faith in God have, should have no deep need to be upfront. To be, um, look, the faithfulness of these guys isn't in some kind of great speech they made, right? It's in how they live their lives. Do you see that in the text? It's not written down, it, but they're not even introduced until they don't bow down and worship the idol. It's It's not first and foremost, they're not making posters or taking out billboards in town about um, how great they are at not being idolaters. You know, how often do we see that kind of thing with the lives, the lives don't prove it, bear out the faith at all. Listen, the way we live our lives, it It matters. That, that's the lesson that we're getting here. Is like they don't they don't make some speech. They don't. Um, they're not these. Uh, they're not influencers. Right? They're not on Instagram posting how great their their Christianity is. They simply refuse to bow to the idol. I think we can learn great lessons there. Simple faithfulness as a Christian. The way that we live our lives in Christ, because of what he has done, I'm going to do this thing and not do that thing. Do you see? It's simple faithfulness. And these, their friends, we can be warned that their friends are very fair weather, like they're kind of come and go. They're really um, happy about Daniel and these three guys when it's expedient for them to, to be aligned with them. And as soon as it's not, they're, they're eating them up. Slander and accusations at work. And then um, Nebuchadnezzar, um, he, he gets hot. Nebuchadnezzar, furious with rage, verse 13, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be, be brought So they brought these men before the king in verse 15, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you into my hands? Again, need I remember all of us that he was just talking about this same God. Your God is truly God. God of gods and Lord of lords. And here he's like, I'm about to fire you up. I'm throwing you in to this furnace. You're evil. And what God is going to stop me? What God is going to stop me? He's his own idol. 
There's none higher than Nebuchadnezzar. Here's a great lesson for living life in exile, and it's this. The favor of the world is short-lived. You can't count on it. It's short-lived. It's here today and gone tomorrow. When you serve the interests of others in the world and you, you line up with them, you're going to be good to go. As soon as you break with that and the gospel is going to cause you to break with that, at some point, you're going to be cast off. We should not be surprised when the world turns on Christians again. The New Testament lesson that we heard earlier from John 15, Jesus saying, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me first. You are going to be hated by certain sectors of this world. It's just going to be a fact of what it means to to follow Christ. Not everybody's going to think you're the greatest. In fact, some people are going to hate you. Child of God, don't be surprised when you're utterly reviled for your views. It it is nothing new for the, the church or us as Christians. So we have fickle power, fair weather friends, and lastly, this faithful answer. Um, So the first time in this whole scene that we actually hear the three accused speak. So again, all they are guilty of is they have not bowed down to the idol, and they cannot, and they will not. This is the first time in the in the narrative that we hear them speak in verses 16 and, and 17. We'll look at the two parts of this. Part one of their answer, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. What a fantastic answer. The gauntlet is thrown down, either bow down to this golden Nebuchadnezzar statue or die in the pit of fire. Here we have one of the greatest expressions of faith spoken in the Old Testament. Here stand three relatively young men, maybe late teens, early 20s, away from their home, taken into Babylon as exiles. They haven't had much instruction in their lives in the worship of God. They haven't been trained for years in the finest seminaries in Judah. They've been trained in the the courts in Babylon University. Here they are before the most absolute monarch in the world at the time. They have no powerful friends to rescue them. They have no army of Judah that could come and get them out of this situation. They are threatened by a horrible death, and yet they... Look at the grace that God gives them. Just think about it for a minute. Think about what they're going through. Look at the grace that God gives them for this trial. Look at the faith that God gives them to to be bold and, 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 and make a stand and admire the Spirit of God, His glory, for just a minute in their answer. Isn't God glorious? Again, not just what they do, but look at, the, look at the God that they're serving and who they're trusting. 
when they say, hey, this isn't even a question for us. We have no need to answer you. We are not going to bow down and God can spare us. What a fantastic answer of faith. Following Christ while we live in exile will inevitably have a cost. Even in the United States where it's free to believe and free to worship here together this morning, which is awesome. Following Christ comes with a price because that's what Jesus promised. That if you're you're going to follow him, if you're his disciple, that means taking up your cross daily. You're like, hey, I... I will likely never face a situation like this. And by God's grace, you won't. Praise the Lord. Right? But you face hundreds of situations like this in your daily life where the choice is the easy thing. Like, hey, worship in this way. Um, Think about your life in this way or follow Christ. You don't have this life, like somebody's likely not going to come to you and say, if you don't bow down to this statue, I'm throwing you into a fiery pit. Praise the Lord. But you have hundreds and thousands. We all have things in our life every day where we're making choices. Will we serve God or bow down to the world? That's what living life in exile is, is all about. As David prayed earlier, we live in the already and the not yet. Christ has already come. We are already in him as believers, but he he has not yet returned. He has not yet set up his physical kingdom on the earth. His kingdom is coming and we are to, to pray for it until it is fulfilled. We will have hundreds of ways in our lives that we will be faced with. Who are we going to worship today? Am I going to worship myself? My career, my possessions, or am I going to worship Christ, my crucified and risen King and Lord? So the gauntlet is thrown down, either bow down or die in the pit. Their response is so full of courage. um, it's, it's not disrespectful, um, but the matter is utterly resolved already. We saw this similar in Daniel. Like, can you make these on the, on the um, fly kind of decisions over life or death? No, they had already decided. This wasn't an in-the-moment issue. They knew the commandment. I'm not going to worship an idol. And that was already set. These guys express their utter confidence in um, God to save them. Deliver is this huge word that is big here. It's like nine or ten times in chapter three and chapter six. God is going to deliver, 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 deliver. God keeps his people. He delivers his people. He's powerful enough to save Not only do these guys believe he can save, they believe he's powerful enough to save in in ways that are utterly um, upending nature. If he wants to keep us alive in the fire, he will. That's what they say. Fire typically consumes. 
But their answer is so full of faith. They say, he can keep us through the fire if he wants to. And then the second part is, to me, this is the, this is the thunder in the, the whole text. This is like, just let it, just let it boom in your heart, please. Um, they say, but if not, even if he does not deliver us, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is not a name it, claim it theology. This is not a theology that is based on outcomes. This is not a faith in God that simply rests on if the outcome of my life is good, then I'm good with it. This is not that. That's why this is the thunder in the, in the passage. Even if he doesn't save us, even if he doesn't, we won't bow. It doesn't matter. This is not a faith based on on outcomes. It it reminded me of Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Is your theology, is your faith a faith based solely on outcomes? Listen, if you follow him, Long enough, you're going to run into outcomes you do not like. His theology is not just, I've got enough faith and I claim it. No, the correct answer is, even if he doesn't, I'm not going to bow to your idol. There is one true and living God and I worship him alone. Paul in Philippians 1, 20 and 21, as it is... Um, my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ. What's the rest of it? To die is gain. That's not a theology of outcomes. That's not, yeah, I'll believe in God as long as everything is going to be right and good. Throughout history, we've witnessed martyrs of, um, of the faith. Those who were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, this is all Hebrews, and they were tempted and slain with the sword, uh, and they made the good confession. And listen, unless you think this is like some kind of extraordinary thing, other kind of faith. I've seen it in our congregation time and time again. I hate Steve and Patty aren't here. I've seen it in them. They make the good confession. They keep the faith. They're very steady. They worship the Lord. I've seen it in you, brothers and sisters. Like, you encourage me. This isn't just some kind of big thing that you have to do in front of others. This is living life together. This is regular faithfulness and worshiping of God. The last point is, um, I, I think we're stopping right in the middle of this text, but it points us to, to Christ. Um, Jesus says, A servant is not greater than his master. If he suffered, you too will suffer. Uh, Jesus 
also said of his own life and his followers, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is what Christ has done. I think Daniel all the way is pointing us ahead to one who is much greater than Daniel. Even through agony in the garden, there there was Jesus with a, a certain sentence over his head, not just from the earthly powers, but from the Father who sent him into the world to die for sinners like you and me. There he was in the garden, praying, Lord, let this cup pass from me. But not my will is ultimately what he said, but your will be done. In agony, he's sweating great drops of blood, even um, asking that the cup be passed. He, he drank it to the dregs. He took the cup of God's wrath. He endured death for sinners like you and me. Do you know this Jesus? Do you know him? The faith of these young men was was in Him. It was in Jesus who was coming, breaking into the world. He's the reason they don't bow. He, Jesus completely gave Himself into the hand of God. Even when He was being turned over to the hands of wicked men who would nail Him to a cross. And His life was utterly and completely vindicated in the glorious resurrection Listen, we live in a world with um, fickle power. And we have friends in, this, in exile who are fair weather friends. They'll use you. They'll use your faith when it's good for them. And they'll turn on you in an instant. But we also live in a world where others before us have made a faithful answer and Jesus answered fully with his entire life. He lived the good confession. Let's pray and give him thanks. Lord, thank you for um, the greatness of your gospel. Lord, might we be shaped and changed and molded by it. Lord, in so many ways we fall short of living a good confession. Help us. Grow us as disciples to live in obedience in this world. To worship you alone. Lord, reveal idols in our hearts and our lives and give us repentance and faith. Lord, even now as we uh, prepare to come to your table, would you lift our hearts up by faith? May we dine with you. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.